seated. Now, after the judgment of Abimelech and the men of Shechem in chapter 9, God continues to do what he does best. He continues to be faithful to his people by raising up even more deliverers for the nation of Israel. Uh, We read in the beginning of chapter 10 that Tola judged Israel for 23 years and Jair after him judged for 22 years. Now, the Bible doesn't teach us a whole lot about these particular judges. In fact, the mo- most of us would probably have to admit that we're completely unfamiliar with those names altogether. But what we're not unfamiliar with, at least by now, is the sinful cycle that we continue to see played out through this book amongst God's people. We saw it played out all the way through the first eight chapters. Chapter 9, what we looked at last week, uh, we kind of saw a break in, in, in that cycle. And now we're going to return to that same sinful cycle again in, verse, in chapter 10 and verse 6. Notice, if you will, in verse 6, the Bible says, The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight, in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So there you have it, like a broken record. Same thing happening over and over again. The people leaving their worship of the one true God for what? For Idols. Now, I got to tell you this. Um, we've taught a lot on idols and seen a lot about idols over the last like nine chapters. You would think that we would finally know enough about idols to move on to another subject, but God shows us that there's even more that we need to know about the subject. And we're going to see that here in chapter 10. You know, it was interesting. I had a conversation about two weeks ago with somebody, and I said, you know, uh, and they just brought this up, and we had a good chuckle about it afterwards. They were like, man, you think that they would eventually learn, those, those Israelites, you think they would eventually learn that there's no satisfaction in these idols. You think they would just finally just give them up and just move. They seem to be so hard-headed and so hard-hearted. And, and, and I just kind of smiled, and I looked at them, and I said, do you really see a big difference between them and us? Do you really see that, that we're these people that are completely, fully sacrificing ourselves or giving ourselves over to God and relying on Him for our lives and fulfillment and for the meaning of life? Or are we continually and perpetually struggling with idols as well? And we both begin to laugh and we're like, absolutely. We, we struggle. We are just like these people constantly over and over going back to it. Now, as I said earlier, we are going to be observing the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and, and we want to take it seriously in the in the. Bible teaches us that we need to take it in, in, in a worthy manner as we take it, as we, as we take of the bread, which represents the broken body of Christ, and we, we drink of the cup, which represents his, his, his shed blood, that, that we need to understand what kind of sacrifice he made for us and ask ourselves, are we living in light of that reality? Are we living a life, a life worthy of, of the sacrifice that Christ has made? And so in, in doing that, we've got to analyze our hearts. We've got to look in our hearts and see how we're living. And I can't think of a better way uh, to lead up, I think, to the Lord's Supper, to prepare our hearts than to talk about this subject of idol worship and, and to look into our own hearts and see where it is. And I'm not even ask, are there any idols in your life? That's just a stupid question. Uh, I can guarantee that there are things in your life that you are re- trusting in rather than trusting fully and completely in God. And if you are, it means that there are idols in your life. So what we want to do before we take the Lord's Supper, there's three truths that I want to just very quickly go over before, in a way of preparation, as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper this morning. Three things I want to show you about the worship of idols. First of all, we see that the worship of idols only leads to wanting more idols. 
okay? So the, the worship of idols only leads to wanting more idols. If you've been with us from the beginning of our study, uh, you should be quite familiar with the fact that Israel has been worshiping these Canaanite gods for a long period of time. In fact, we can trace it back all the way to chapter two, which means that they weren't in the land, God's given land, promised land very long before they begin to take on the gods of the people around them. And what we found is every time they do it, it never, ever ends well, does it? Uh, every time they begin to take on these gods, it always ends in oppression, in heartache, in difficulty, in, in, in suffering. And so logic would tell us this. Logic would say, listen, if you do something and 100% of the time you do it, it causes stress and turmoil and pain in your life, the logical thing to do is to do what? Stop doing it, right? In this case, stop worshiping false idols. That would be logical. But the problem with idol worship is we never think logically. It's not about thinking logically because we're not being driven by what we're thinking in our minds clearly. We're being driven by our own sinful passions and our own sinful lust. Whatever heart wants is what we're gravitating ultimately to. And so here's, here's where they should have come. Each time that they were beginning to be oppressed and they begin to suffer because of their idol worship, at that moment, they should have turned and said, Let's give up these idols. This is not working out well for us. Let's return to our God. But that's not the conclusion they come to. Instead, the conclusion that they come to is, listen, the problem is not with the idols. The problem is that we don't have enough idols. We need more idols. If the ones you have don't work, well, then just find some more. And so that's what they do. What we see in the shift in this first part of the chapter in, in, in verse 6 is they were worshiping the Baals of Ashtaroth, the gods of Canaan, but along the way, they've picked up a whole lot of other idols. They were like, hey, listen, that really wasn't working for us, so let's just get some more. And so now they're worshiping not only the idols of Canaan, but also worshiping all the gods outside of Canaan, which included the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. One of the authors says it so right. He puts it this way. He says, idol worship leads to slavery, and most often then slavery leads into even more idol worship. So catch this. We, we begin to worship things. They begin to worship these false gods. It leads to struggle and oppression and difficulty. And instead of repenting and getting rid of their idols, they take on even more. They think the answer is, well, we just need to worship even more idols. That will do it for us. Now, is that really how it works? It's clearly what's happening in the text of Scripture, but is that what happens in the life of a believer? I think it is. Uh, stop and think just for a moment of a young lady who she's captivated with this idea of getting married and having children and settling down and being a homemaker. She's so excited about it, and, and which is, in the beginning, is, is not a bad thing at all. Those are God-given desires, which a lot of our idols that we end up worshiping begin that way, very very harmless, not a problem at all. And so she wants to get married, but as time goes by, this desire grows even greater in her. And now it begins to become a pursuit. And it begins to really um, gravitate her heart. All of her heart begins to gravitate to the idea. Uh, her anxieties are all based uh, up, uh, either good or bad, based on whether she's going to get married or whether a relationship is going to work out. The next thing she knows is the only thing she can think about. 
and she's finding her identity in her ability to be able to get married. She's finding her self-worth and, and her meaning in life is all wrapped up into whether or not she's going to be able to get married. So she finds a nice guy. She begins to date him. Things seem to be going okay. She pours all of her energy and effort and heart and dependence in this relationship. It doesn't work out. It doesn't work out and she's devastated. I mean, does this sound familiar? I mean, she's, oh, she's beyond devastated. She can't even, she doesn't even know how she's gonna move on and get beyond this point, which, by the way, is demonstrating that this is an idol in her life. If, if there's something that you lose in this life apart from Christ because you can't lose him and, and you're devastated and you can't move on no matter what relationship or thing that is, you can pretty much know that that thing is an idol inside of your life. Now, what she should do is this. The pain that she's experiencing, the difficulty that she's experiencing at this point should cause her to turn to God and repent. It should cause her to sit back and say, listen, I put way too much into that relationship. Not that she shouldn't work at relationships, but she, she was too dependent upon it. She thought her self-worth would come from it. She thought that the only way she could truly be happy was from it. And so somebody needs to speak truth into her life or the Holy Spirit needs to convict her at this particular point and let her know, hey, listen, this is not the way to go. Come back to me. You're only gonna find fulfillment in me, in Christ. But instead, what does she do? The problem is not with the idol. The problem is she just needs to find a different idol. She says, well, listen, I'm just not dating the right men. And so what does she do? She goes back to pursuing even other men. Do you see how it works? Idol worship leads to oppression, suffering, difficulty. And instead of us repenting and going back to God, the children of Israel continue to do what? Pursue even more idols. It, the problem is not with, the, with idol worship. The problem is I don't have enough of them or I don't have the right one. Now, this doesn't make any logical sense again. Now, stop and think about it. Think of just some of the idols that people serve. And I know this is generic and very Sunday school sounding about what I'm about to say, but, but just bear with me, all right? The world in general, and we can name a lot of different things, but there are things that people think are, are, are their idols, their pursuits. Say drugs, all right? I know, it's very Sunday schoolish. okay? Say, say drugs, all right? Just work with me. All right, drugs. Drugs is gonna make me happy. I've just gotta have drugs, all right? Drugs, what, what are the other ones? Uh, uh, sexual activity, all right? That kind of thing, sexual fulfillment, uh, money, okay? Uh, power, all of these things. These are the things, at the same time, as generic as they sound, yes, they still are the things that people are living for. They're striving for, they're idols, they're, they're what people want and think that will make their lives really full. And so if that's true, if these things really are what make life fulfilling and what makes a person happy, then it would be logical to say that the people who get the most of those things should be the happiest people in the world, right? If it makes you happy, the more you get, the happier you should be. So the person who has the most, dr the most drugs, the drug addict, should be the happiest person in the world. The person with the most sexual activity, the prostitute, should be the happiest person in the world. The person with the most money should be the happiest person in the world. Now, some of you are sitting back going, now that's a different issue, right? That's, that's different. Yet, J. Paul Getty, one of the richest men who ever lived, at the point of his death, wept. And he said, I would give up everything, every ounce of everything that I have for one meaningful relationship. What about power and success? Alexander the Great at the age of 28, had accomplished everything. He had, he, had, he had defeated basically the whole known world during the time. And at age 28, he wept in his bed because there was nothing left for him to conquer. Wept. Most powerful man in the world, and he was still empty. 
This is, here's the key, just, just so that you know, and you've heard this a million times, and that's, that's why I think I was kind of even a little bit nervous about the message today. You've heard this a million times, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. Nothing fulfills and satisfies like our God. Nothing, nothing. And so what we have to do is we have to very, very carefully uh, I'm going to repeat myself. Very carefully, be careful. You're not supposed to speak that way. But for emphasis, be very carefully, be careful that we don't buy into the lie. And what is the lie? That when we begin to pursue these idols, one is that it's going to make us happy. It's going to lead to happiness. It's only going to lead to what? Distress, oppression. But when we're in that oppression, to think that the answer to, to get out of this is not to abandon the idols, but to go on and take on more of the idols. And I think if you look in your life, you, I think you'll see, hey, yeah, my, my, problem is not that, is, my problem is not that I love money. My problem is I don't have enough money. My problem is not that I don't have a, a, a good relationship. I just need a different relationship. Do you see how that works? And so what we find is, is the simple truth here is that first, we see that the worship of idols only leads to the wanting of more idols. Number two, we see that the worship of idols leads to something worse than the discipline of God. You say, is there anything really different, worse than the discipline of God? If you've anybody ever been disciplined by God because of our sin, yes. Can there be anything worse? The Bible says absolutely. Um, here in verse seven, it says, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them, he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. What a terrifying phrase, he sold them. What, what exactly does that mean? I think to understand what it means, we have to make sure uh, we're not mistaken. What, what, what does it not mean? I don't think when he says that he sold them that he was washing his hands of the people altogether. I don't think he was turning his back one final time with them. I don't think he was cutting them off. I don't, I don't think that he was, in essence, saying, hey, listen, I'm, 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 I'm dissolving all of my promises for you, and I'm not going to fulfill them. I don't, I don't think that's what's happening. But what's happening here is something unique. What's happening here, we haven't seen through the rest of the study of the word of God. What we found is the people begin to pursue false gods, and each time God, out of his love, would graciously and mercifully discipline them by raising up a pagan king and putting them into a state of oppression and difficulty and misery. Why did he do it? Because he loved them. He wanted them to see the emptiness of idol worship. He wanted them to see the, the shallowness and the hollowness of it so that they would drive back and they would come back to him. But do we see him do it? No. They stop just enough to get God off their back. And then the moment the pressure's off, what do they do? They begin to pursue the same gods over and over and over again until God says, enough. That's, don't, that, that's not what you want God to say. You don't want God to come to the point where he says, I've disciplined you, disciplined you, disciplined you. You keep going after this idol. Guess what? You want it, I'm gonna give it to you. That's what he means here, that he sold them. What it means is, is that God saw what they wanted and decided that he was gonna give it to them. He gives the rights of these people over to their enemies and says, they want you to rule over them, so here you go, rule over them. And what do we find ultimately happens with this? Well, we see in verse eight, this is what they get when God gives us over. It's, it's similar language as we find in Romans 1 when it says that God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. And notice this, when God, when we're pursuing the lust of our hearts and God's disciplining us, but we keep striving and keep persisting against his, his, his protective and powerful hand from doing that by disciplining us and we keep pressing on, he gives us, uh, what does it say in verse 8? And they were crushed and oppressed, the people of Israel that year. 
For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel. The whole point in the way that this is written out is to let you know that as much difficulty and hardship and heartache that they experienced in the past because of the discipline and action of God, it is nothing compared to what they've now experienced by getting what it is that they've wanted all of this time. He says they're not only oppressed, he says now they are crushed. They are completely and utterly controlled by the people who serve the same gods that they wanted to be able to serve. And so the pain that we experience uh, in, in, when, when we don't get what we want because God's disciplining and keeping us from it is nothing in compared to when God sits back and says, okay, you want it? Go ahead. You can have it. Stop and think just for a moment. Think of a the young man, we picked on the young lady, let's pick on a young man, all right? Let's do it, let's be equal, all right? Equal rights, Woohoo! Um, young man, he's in hot pursuit of success, and he wants to be successful, and he wants a business to, to go well. And again, guys, it's really hard to navigate through this because I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be successful. I don't think there's anything wrong being the very best that, that, God, that you can be for the glory of God there, right? But what happens is, again, things get out of whack. Things get out of balance. And you and I begin to think that, that this, this young man begins to think that the only way he's going to be truly fulfilled and truly happy and truly satisfied is to accomplish and get these particular positions and keep working up the corporate ladder and keep making more money. And so he gets to the point that if he's not succeeding, if he's not advancing, he feels like a failure. He feels like life is not worth living. But if he can advance and he can do more things and he can get more positions, he begins to feel as though, guess what? Life is great, that this is what it's all ultimately about. Now, what happens? Say this man, he, he fails several times to get this one particular job. All right, and I'm gonna bring the church in this, this illustration. So he can't get this job. He's tried three times. Have you heard something like this? He's tried three times, three times, man. He can't get it for whatever reason. And he's miserable. And so here's the prayer request. Guys, you really gotta pray for my husband. He's gone and tried to get this thing for three times and he's failed three times and he is miserable. I don't know what he's gonna do or how he's gonna feel or, or, or how he's gonna respond if he doesn't get it this fourth time. Would you please pray that he ultimately gets that position? Right? And we're all like, yeah, man, we don't, look, we don't want him coming home busting heads and being angry on y'all. So we're going to pray that he gets that. The question that we've got to ask ourselves, though, and just, just really practically is, but what is the worst thing that could happen to that man? For some of us, we think the worst thing that can happen to him is not get the position. It's the worst thing that can happen. But in all reality, the worst thing that might happen to him is him to get the very thing that his lustful heart is so desiring to be able to get. If he gets it, it's just going to fuel the flame. It's only going to fuel the desire for success and for those things. And very soon what he's going to do is he's going to become controlled by it. He's going to be given over to it. It's going to rule his life, and eventually it's going to destroy his life. Are you, you guys catching that? So it's, it's, it's interesting to me because, stop and think about this for a minute, is sometimes I, I'll speak for myself because I know it reflects you too, all right? I hate, to, I hate to drag you down with me, all right? But here it is. I know for myself, there are times in my life that I've gotten angry when God says no. God, I want this. I really want this. Have you, have you ever done that? Have you ever been there? God, I just, if I could just have this, if I could just have this house, if I could just have this relationship, you fill in the blank. If I could just have what? You fill in the blank, all right? First of all, ask yourself, why do you need it so bad? Why do you need it so bad? What's the reasoning for your compulsion to need whatever it is that you want so bad? Answer that question. 
It's a very important question to be able to answer. Well, I want that humongous house because, because I'm going to open it up to, to, to small group. That's what I'm going to do. Okay, give me the huge house, God, and if you give me that huge house, I'll use it for your glory and at least use it five times throughout the year to have people over in fellowship for Jesus, right? Uh, you guys are sitting there going, who would say that? Everybody, just about, all right? God, if I could just have this, I'll use it for your glory. What will you do? Well, every Monday I'll, or every Sunday, I'll drive to church in, in, in that $900,000 car. I'll just drive, I'll, I'll use it for your glory, right? Guys, God knows the motivation, Right? He knows why, what it is that we're asking. So ask yourself, why is it that we want this particular thing? But stop and think for a moment. So many times when you and I have been frustrated with God, angry with God, confused of God, of why aren't you giving me what it is that I want? I've asked you and you said no, and I asked you and you said no. And what we need to understand is we need to look at that biblically and not raise our hands in anger to God, but raise both hands in worship to God to say that you love me enough, discipline me enough to say no, because if he were to say yes, he would be throwing up his hands and allowing us then to get what it is that our idolatrous hearts wants and it could ultimately destroy us. You see how that works with idol worship? We see two things. Third thing that we see here is this, is that we see that the worship of idols is often marked by false repentance. It's often marked by false repentance. Look at verse 10, and we're gonna finish up very quickly on this. Uh, The Bible says there, look at verse 10, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because you have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Amalekites and from the Philistines? The, the uh, Sidonians uh, also in the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will say, how frightening is this? Therefore, I will save you no more. He says, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Remember, we've seen all the way through this. I even preached a whole sermon on this, is is that people are constantly doing what? They are constantly calling out and saying, God, we're sorry, Uh, have mercy on us, but we know that they're not truly repenting, right? Because they're not sorry for their sin against God. That's not why they're crying out for mercy. That's not why their hearts are broken. Their hearts are broken because of the difficulty you're experiencing because of their sin. They hate the, 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 they hate the pain. They, they, they don't hate the sin. And so it's, it's important for you and I today, before we come to Lord's Supper, and maybe some of us have come today, and maybe of a summer, some, hey, I just gotta get into church, man. Things are not right right now. And the question is, are, are, are you coming and you're calling out to God because you just want the pain to stop? Or are you coming to him because you're broken over your sin. We've got to know the distinction between those two things. God knows the distinction between those things. That's what we've got to understand. He knows when you and I cry out and we're saying, God, help us. He knows, is it, am I broken over this sin or am I just in despair because of the consequences of my own sin? If there were no consequences at all, would I be calling out to God? Would I be coming to him? Would I be seeking to serve him? No, most of the time. And so here's what he says. And remember, he comes to them. He then tells them, he says, cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. He says, let them have you in the time of your distress. Another author points out this. He points out that the people were doing what we commonly do is that they were turning from idolatry in an idolatrous way. Okay, let me, let me break that. Let me break it down just very quickly. 
Idolatry is basically these people are worshiping these gods not because they have any true affection for these gods, but they think if they do all the right things for their gods, treat them the right way, that then the gods will do something in return for them. They're in essence using the idols to get what it is that they ultimately want. And what he's saying here is the people keep turning from their idolatry to God in an idolatrous way. Why? Because when they turn to God, they're doing the same exact thing. They're not turning because they love him. They're not turning because they, they, their desire is for him. They're turning to him simply to have him do the same thing he, they were trying to get the other gods for. God, take away my pain. And God calls them on it. He sees it. He calls them on it. And then notice this in verse 15. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. And notice this. Notice the change in the response. He says, do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And then it goes on. It says, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Do you see the difference? Before when they called out to God, they were saying, God, help us. We're suffering. We want this suffering to stop. The only reason to call out. Now when they're calling out, God calls them on that. They look and they reflect in their heart. And so now here's the voice of true repentance. Here it is. God, yeah, I'm suffering because of my own sin. And in truth, I deserve it. And the truth is, I'm going to repent from my sin and I'm going to turn to you even if you choose for me to continue to suffer for the outcome of my sin. Even if I continue to suffer from this day forward, I will turn and I will serve you in spite of what you do in my life. That is a true demonstration of authentic, saving repentance. Are you with me? So let me, let me ask you how, you, how you doing with your idols? How you doing with them? And, and here's, here's, here's one of the difficulties of messages like this and messages through the whole book. It's just like the young man that I was talking to at lunch. We just have a hard time of seeing our idols. So ask yourself a couple questions. What is it that you really, really, really like? What is the thing that really consumes your mind so oftentimes of getting or obtaining? What is it that you see your whole life using your energies to jockey yourself to be able to obtain? What are the things that cause you the highest highs in the worst pain? If you'll begin to talk to yourself that way, if you just, if you just look over the last week, and you just begin to stop and think for a moment, God, what were the things that made me happy? And what were the things that were really, really discouraging? When you begin to really be honest with yourself, I begin to become honest with myself, which is almost impossible to do without the help of God. We begin to look, we begin to see these different gods. The question is not, do you, are you worshiping false gods? The question is, which gods are you worshiping? Which gods are you worshiping? You know, there's some who are in here and maybe, maybe you've come and we're so glad you're here because we believe that the difficulties in your life have, have raised and the discipline of God in your life has happened for you to come and for you to see your need to repent to him. We, we, we believe that. That's what we want you to do. But what I don't want you to do is to sit back and just say, I'm just here for him to make the pain stop. He may very well. He may very well. He may, he may very well help you in that. But it's not what his ultimate desire is for you. You know, there's some of us who are sitting back again and, and, and we're, we're looking through this and at the same time, we just, we just think we need something else. We've, we've gotten what we've wanted. We're not satisfied in it. And we keep thinking, if I just get something else, maybe you're in a marriage today. You're unhappy in the marriage and you're like, man, if I was just in another marriage, 
I'd be happy. Do you see the same exact idol worship? Uh, it's not, the problem is not my idol. The problem is what? The problem is I need another idol. For some of you, you're mad at God. For some of us, we just need to repent today. And instead of condemning God for not giving us what our idolatrous hearts have wanted, maybe today is just a day of praise where you and I sit back and God say, God, thank you. What I thought was your lack of love for me was a demonstration of incredible love, your straining arm not willing to let me up to the things that would ultimately destroy me. Maybe it's just time to to pray. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and I'm gonna pray. We're gonna sing. I'm gonna ask you to do business to God. Search your heart.